So the house I grew up in had four bedrooms upstairs. There was one at the top of the stairs. One is you would make your way through the hallway, and then two of them were at the back of the house. And these two bedrooms at the back of the house were the ones in which my sister and I occupied. So she had the one that would have been on the right of the house. I had the one that would have been on the left of the house. And in this house, the roof sloped down um, from the edge of those windows. It sloped down and then it kind of flattened out where we had a carport underneath this, this flat part of the roof. And the slope was such that it wasn't steep enough where my sister and I, since the windows were right there, we could open our windows and walk down the roof and then off onto the flat part. And we did this pretty regularly. And then you could also like climb up and then I would hide behind the chimney and do stuff that teenagers do on top of roofs. So um, that was like a hiding spot for me, right? But my sister and I, we would climb down off the roof, and we decided to do this one Saturday morning. We climbed out the windows, we walked down, and then we were sitting there on the edge of the, of the flat part of the roof with our feet dangling off the edge. We might have been, I don't know exactly how old we were, but somewhere in the neighborhood between like 7 and 10 years old. She's 21 months younger than I am. So that was our age, and our parents had no idea that we were out there at the time. And I had this crazy idea in my head um, that my sister could likely jump off the roof and land on her feet if uh, she were to do so. Now, I know like this might sound like a sinister plot to get rid of my sister, but the narrative I want you to hear... Um, is that I had supreme confidence in her athletic abilities to pull this off. I mean, later in her life, she turned out to be an all-district softball player, so I know the prowess that she, that she holds on to. So she looked down, and um, she saw there were some railroad ties that were boxing in an old garden, and she wasn't sure that she would be able to do this. It was only about eight feet I say only about eight feet, but to a seven-year-old, that looks like a couple of stories. So um, my suggestion was that we would throw some blankets down there to kind of soften the blow, uh, just in case she wasn't able you know, to land uh, on her feet. So we went back into the house, and we got all of, the, all of the, the blankets off the beds and the pillows, and now they're on the ground below. And meanwhile, our dog, Teddy, uh, who is an English sheepdog, is sitting down there outside his house looking up at us, like wondering what the heck is going on. And then the moment came. My sister scooted back out to the edge of the roof. She had a little more unrest um, about like the speed she might descend. And so I suggested that she grab the corners of her uh, trusted crocheted blanket to use as a parachute, nine-year-old logic. And she threw it over her shoulders, and I leaned over for a final look, and then a countdown. Three, two, one. She jumped. She jumped off the roof with her blanket over her head, and it felt like an eternity for me. 
not even close to hitting the blankets or the pillows. <laughs> she landed straight down on her behind with her feet pressed straight out in front of her, right on her tailbone. A squeal, there were some tears, then a look up at me. I was terrified but proud, scared but joyful, not exactly sure how I felt in this moment until she stared back up at me with tears in her eyes and said, I'm telling on you. This is probably the worst thing I ever did <laughs> to my sister. And honestly, it was pretty bad. I was pretty young, though, and I don't remember what repercussions I suffered because of this. However, I do remember the incident pretty vividly. I know that we were still wearing our pajamas, and I know that my sister trusted me blindly, and she had total confidence in what I was telling her would be the right thing, right up until the point that she hit the ground. Think about the worst thing. If you have siblings, think about the worst thing you ever did to one of them. Maybe you didn't have siblings. In that case, what's the worst thing you ever did to one of your friends? Did you ever pull a prank that went awry? Did you ever lose a friend because of something that you did? Maybe the opposite is true. This is a story that my family uh, shares pretty, off, pretty often. At Christmas, Thanksgiving, other family get-togethers, it tends to come up quite regularly. It's, it's well known to be a huge mess up by me early in my life. That being said... It pales in comparison to what we find in Genesis chapter 37. And some of you may already know what story I'm talking about. And this is the story of Joseph, the son of Jacob. Perhaps one of the most famous stories in the Bible. And one of, us that, uh, and one of the stories that, I know of, that some of us know fairly well. But if you're not familiar with the story, here's the way this shakes out. So the Bible tells us that Joseph is the son of Jacob, and he's the one that he loves the most. This is because he was born to Jacob late in his life. And Joseph is 17 years old at the beginning of this story, and he's known as being an obedient young man. Uh, but those of us who are first born to our parents would categorize him as a little bit of a tattletale. Uh, he reports to his father all the bad stuff that his older brothers are doing, and his brothers hate him for it. They don't have a single kind word to say about him. And to add to it, Joseph has this coat that distinguishes him from the rest of his brothers. It was a gift from his father to make it known that Joseph would receive the largest portion of the inheritance that would eventually pass from Jacob to his sons. So Joseph, in addition to all of this, he has these dreams and he decides one day that he's going to start sharing these dreams with his brothers. Maybe or maybe not, he realizes this will increase their jealousy and hatred that, that they have towards him. So Joseph approaches them and he's like, hey, listen uh, to this crazy dream I had. Um, we were working in the fields, tying up bundles of grain. Then my grain bundle stood up. And your bundles gathered around and bowed low before mine. <laughs> Accurate retelling of the dream? Yeah, sure, but let's work on this delivery a little bit, right? So the brothers are like, oh, okay. So, 
So you'll be our king? And they hate him even more because of what they're hearing. Feeling pretty confident about himself, I don't know why, Joseph decides he's going to tell them about another dream that he has. And he's like, guys, would you believe it if I told you that I had another dream, kind of like the same as before? And they're like, okay, tread lightly, our brother. And he's like, no, really. Uh, This time, the sun, moon, and 11 stars bowed low before me. And that star thing is the one that gets them. Because the grain thing was bad enough, but the star thing would have been symbolic. And it would have really meant something to them because the stars were symbolic of the rulers that the Hebrews had. So if the 11 stars are bowing before Joseph, he's telling them essentially, I'm going to be in charge of you, even though like, I'm the youngest right now or one of the youngest. And um, I know that doesn't make a lot of sense, but I just feel led to like, tell you these dreams. And so this time, in, att- in addition to telling his brothers, he decides he's going to tell his father about this dream that he had. And Jacob, he gets upset. He's trying to process it a little bit. But he at least has the wisdom uh, to wonder what the dreams might mean. So not long after this, the brothers are out tending uh, their father's flocks. And they've been out a little too long, probably messing around, doing stuff they're not supposed to be doing. So Jacob sends Joseph out to check on them. Um, and they see him in the distance. They see him walking in to where they're tending these flocks. And um, while he's walking in, a few of them devise this plan to kill him. Like, well, here he comes. Let's kill him and we'll just take care of this. Uh, one guy steps up, the brother Reuben. He's like, no, let's not do that. Let's throw him in this cistern. And he's got this plan that he's not sharing with everybody where he's going to come back and rescue him. None of that works out. They don't kill him, uh, but through all of this, what they decide that they're going to do is that they're going to sell him to, some, to this caravan of traders that, that happens to be passing by. Um, so they throw him into this cistern. The caravan comes by. They pull him out of there. They sell him. And I guess they show him some mercy uh, by taking 20 pieces of silver for him instead of killing him. Uh, but then they take his coat, they kill this poor little goat, and they soak the coat in the blood, and they present the coat to their father, who assumes that he's been eaten by a wild animal. I don't know what kind, wolf, lion, uh, maybe a dinosaur, who knows, I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but obviously, Jacob doesn't take this news well. He's devastated. He He rips his clothes and he dresses himself in burlap, which through the book of Job uh, leads us to believe that he's in this state of extreme grieving. People trying to comfort him and it's not working. He's so upset and he says this. He says, I will go to my grave mourning for my son. A lot happens after that. Um, Joseph He's sold to a man named Potiphar, who puts him in charge of his household. Uh, But Potiphar's wife uh, sets Joseph up because she's trying to get him in bed with her. He's then thrown into prison by Potiphar, where he gains favor with the prison guards. And the prison guards put him in charge of other prisoners. And this theme starts to develop in in Joseph's life, where we're told he keeps getting 
put into positions of authority because he's a faithful man and he has godly wisdom. And he gets into this situation where he's interpreting dreams for some of the prisoners. One is a cupbearer who is a person who pours the Pharaoh's wine and he, um, he he drinks it, he tests it to make sure there's not poison in it. It's good work if you can get it, I guess. And the other is a chief baker. And he's the, I guess, the chief of baking, whatever. Um, that sounds like a cool job, too, to me. Uh, I forgot to mention, they're in Egypt. That's an important part of this story. That's where the Pharaoh comes into play. They're in Egypt. That's important later. Uh, so Joseph interprets these dreams. They both tell Joseph their dreams. He interprets them. The cupbearer gets good news. Joseph tells him that he will be restored to his position. And upon hearing this good news, the chief baker's like, well, I want to hear my dream too. So he goes over and he's like, you're going to be impaled and birds are going to peck at your flesh. Now look, man, bread is pretty tough to mess up. I would assume even more so back then because everybody knew how to make bread because that's all there was to eat. Um, I make bread. It's tough to, it's, it's tough to, it's really tough to mess up. So that was either some pretty terrible bread or something else was going on. Uh, <laughs> so a few years later, Pharaoh, the, the head of Egypt that I forgot to mention earlier, hears about this and he hears about this man who can interpret dreams and he brings Joseph in hoping that he can interpret his own. Um, and he does. And long story short, Joseph tells Pharaoh there's going to be this famine and they, do well, they would do well to start saving some of the grain for when this happens, some of the grain that they harvest. Pharaoh trusts him, he believes him, and they do what Joseph recommends. But furthermore, what this does, or more importantly what this does, is it, it elevates Joseph to like in charge of Egypt. He is one below the Pharaoh. And it dawned on me this morning that he's the royal vizier, like Jafar and Aladdin. <laughs> he has the same power as Pharaoh himself. Um, so this famine comes. And the famine doesn't just hit Egypt though, right? It's widespread to include the area of Canaan where Joseph's family is living. Jacob hears of grain stored in Egypt and he tells his sons to go to Egypt to buy some so they don't starve to death. These are the same brothers. They show up. And then the dreams that Joseph shared with his brothers start playing out in real life when they have to deal with him while purchasing this grain. They bow before him, call him Lord, and they claim that they are honest men. What ends up happening here is before they even realize who Joseph is, he puts these brothers through a series of tests to see if their hearts are changed. And after being convinced that they are now honest men, he takes care of them. And the question I asked myself this week was, is this grace? Because it seems to be like a lot of stipulations in order to earn the thing to me after I read this story this past week. And I always assumed it was grace, but I wasn't sure after I thought, after I thought about this. And I like to think that on some level it is, uh, but it's hard to get to that point for me immediately. Now, like I said, this story is one of the most well-known, some may say famous, in the Bible. Um, It's a story that has a musical made about it. 
It's a story that has a Disney movie made about it. Most of us know this story, and I only go through it again in this much detail because the context is so important. Um, Particularly as it pertains to Joseph and those years he spent away from his family. So what I tried to do was put myself in Joseph's shoes, and what I found, both through reading the Bible and through my own experiences, was that I, only, I can only assume that he suffered tremendous trauma um, through, this, through this experience. And yeah, you know, at the beginning of the story, we might see him as this snot-nosed little brat of a brother when he was 17, but sold to some merchants for 20 pieces of silver. I don't know. It's easy to sit back, read this story, and say, you know, it sounds like a pretty good life. Joseph is the royal vizier. I've seen Aladdin. I know what kind of power that has, right? (laughs) Like, um, he's in charge of Egypt. Sign me up. But later in the text, it says Joseph weeps at the thought of what's happening. He invites the brothers over for this over-the-top feast at his palace, and he has to leave the room at one point so he can go cry and get himself together in the bathroom washes his face, he comes back out. I tried to imagine that scenario, seeing these family members after they sold you to some strangers. What kind of rage would you feel after having been separated from your family in this violent and abrupt manner? Would you plot and scheme revenge? Devise a plan to kill them if you ever saw them again? Maybe not. But if that was the end of this story, would any of us be surprised? I wouldn't be. The timeline in the story leads me to believe Joseph might have been close to his 40s, maybe 37, 38, when his brothers show up trying to purchase this grain. So for maybe 20 years, Joseph has time to think and process about what he might do if, in fact, he ever crossed them again. He puts them through the ringer a little bit when he could have done much, much worse. Something else for us to consider is how Joseph might have changed, too. Certainly, he's contemplated his own life and this seemingly unwarranted or undeserved rise to power and maybe the greatest kingdom the world knew at the time. And I can only assume it didn't make much sense to him until he saw his brothers walking up to him, bowing and trying to buy some grain to feed their families. I thought about all this. And if the definition of grace is one that means receiving a blessing even though we don't deserve it, then yes, what Joseph practiced is grace. So I told a story about convincing my sister to jump off the roof of our house. (laughs) It wasn't good, but she's okay. Um, She didn't break anything. Uh, She just had a bruise for a while. Um, That story was about how I messed up. And we all have one of those, whether or not we like to admit it. But we've all been on the other side of it, too. And those aren't really the kind of stories I want to stand up here and and talk about, though. It feel weird, and maybe I'm just not that vulnerable. But it's also because the process we go through to get to reconciliation with others can be grueling. It's tough, and it's not fun. And this story always gets me thinking about past indiscretions, both that I've committed and had committed against me. Um... And I've been lucky enough to reconcile with family, with friends, 
um, on both sides of the coin. People screw up, man. You might have heard this, like, you know, God loves working through broken people. My thought to that has always been, does he have another choice? None of us are perfect. And what I really like about this story is the restraint and humility Joseph presents to us when he could have used his power to destroy. It's a story that really should mean something to us. I take it to heart when I read how Joseph treated his family when he came back into contact with him. His brother hated him because of the way that he was, and by creating this lie that he was dead, stealing nearly half of his life to that point, they made a pretty, uh, a pretty big misstep by getting rid of him, probably thinking they would never seeing, see him again. And then at their lowest point, they came to buy grain, and Joseph sends them away, not only with the grain, but also back to Canaan with the money with which they came to purchase it. And all of this before he even reveals to them who he is. I find that to be fascinating. I think about my family a lot uh, when I'm reading this story. And it's, it's important. It's an important story to me. Um, because family stuff is hard. It can be the hardest, in fact. When we feel a sense of betrayal that comes from our family, it seems to cut a little bit deeper than when it happens elsewhere. Dealing with difficult family situations is something I think all of us have in common. Um, There's guilt, shame, years upon years of trauma to process to even get to the point where we feel like coming around again. And I think Joseph suffered through all of these things. Matter of fact, I would guarantee Joseph suffered through all of these things. The often untold part of this story is a story of grace, which is never deserved but always welcomed for the receiver. And the unique thing about grace is that it provides a sense of relief both for the offender and the offendee. And I mean, maybe there are other emotions that cause these type of feelings in some way, but this thing, this thing called grace that has been given to us from the Lord above stands out, am- uh, stands out amongst all of the things in my mind as a superior thing in creation. And as hard as it is sometimes to get to the point of receiving it or giving it, I'm glad that it's there. And I'm glad it's mentioned as a key characteristic of the one who created us. And my hope and prayer for us today is that we can all live knowing that that grace is available for us to give and for us to receive. Let's pray. Father God, um, We're just so thankful that you have given us this this powerful testimony of uh, a man named Joseph who, uh, through all reason, human reason, we would not fault him for uh, or be surprised that, uh, that things did not end in the way that they did but you show us your character. You show us who you are in the telling of this story. By fortifying Joseph in his faith and letting him know that there's always a bigger picture to consider. Gotta pray that that we can live lives as people full of grace, that we can be willing to give and to receive it. And I pray that if anybody is dealing with family issues or 
things with close friends, whatever might be going on, I pray that you allow the Holy Spirit to prompt them to reconcile. Lord, we love you, and we only know these things are possible uh, through Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.